I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Fabrice Pinot, co-founder of the perfume company Lalabo. Lalabo perfume is made on the spot for the client in each store, and the brand is appreciated for its minimalist, peeled-back aesthetic. While the company has a niche feel, a Lalabo scent can be recognized internationally. Lalabo launched its first store on Elizabeth Street in New York City in 2006 and was acquired by Estee Lauder in 2015. Fabrice is originally from Chateau-Roux in France. I want to talk about just one's olfactory life. Uh, and before we started recording, you were talking about the experience of a child to his mother. Do you know the scent of your mother? Yes, yes. I mean, she wears one of, <laughs> of my perfumes. But she used to wear Lancôme Trésor in the past. The smell of, of the perfume my mother was wearing when I was a child is, is something very precious. Every time I, I, catch it, I catch a whiff of it in the street, I, I'm just back, back there in France. It, it brings us back to the fact that we are all animals in the first place and uh, that the sense of smell played a tremendous role early on in our development. Before we were Homo erectus, before we stood up, the sense of smell was mainly there for helping us to survive in the wild because we were basically very low. The vision was not helping us very much to identify even a threat because uh, we would be surrounded by high grass. Your sense of smell would, would basically tell you there is a threat coming. The sense of smell would have told you that this piece of meat is rotten and don't eat it. And then, with evolution, we actually brought some idea of pleasure and beauty to it, which is my craft. And when did you know that you wanted to become a nose to make the olfactory life your perfection, your profession? Well, it, it became obvious pretty late, actually. I'm not... There is a lot of people in the fragrance uh, world who are born perfumers. Uh, their father was a perfumer in grass. Their grandfather was perfumers. They are like mm. legacies of perfumers, and that's what you become. But it became later an obvious way for me to express myself after having tried many, many ways uh, through... Uh, writing, music, uh, philosophy, things like that. But uh, once I discovered perfumery, it became obvious that this was going to be part uh, of my life. The idea of making is definitely, is, a, is definitely something that is central to my idea of meaning as a human being, as an entrepreneur, as a father. It's kind of incredible, the power of, of making things. I think there is a, a line in the Torah that says, make and you will know. Fait et tu sauras in French. The day I read that line, it really inspired me. Was there a person uh, who was a nose? How did you come to it? Uh, I started my professional life in advertising, and then I got hired by a beauty group called L'Oréal in France. I was very young. I was lucky enough to um, be kind of interning next to the nose of L'Oréal, who was called uh, Elisabeth Carr at the time, who became very important uh, in my life and uh, who basically taught me a lot uh, about perfume. She, she helped shape my taste and she kind of gave me the first nudge to enter that world. And then I went in a little uh, seminar, like I was by myself basically for a workshop with one of the best perfumers in the world uh, called Jean-Claude Elena who uh, used to be the perfumer of Hermès. Of and Hermès. Of Hermès, yeah. And he, he had a, uh, at the time, he had a little uh, workshop 
in Graz uh, where he was sharing his craft and I went there for a week and um, and we had the, the most beautiful connection and and, and and it was a haha moment for me to really um, get a beautiful uh, look behind the curtain of mm. perfume creation. Yeah. Now why Grasse? What, what makes Grasse France uh, the perfume mecca? Is it? It is kind of. I mean, it is... Uh, it's on the Riviera. Yeah. It's a little village that is... Uh, in a, in a valley, and it's true that um, there is a, a specific ecosystem there that uh, helped uh, a certain kind of rose to uh, flourish. And it's a very precious uh, ingredient in perfumery. It goes even back to the fact that Grasse was actually a place where we, uh, gloves makers, glove makers were, ma- were, were actually based uh, during uh, the monarchy and uh, to cover the smell of uh, leather and animal skin, they would use petals and they would use perfume in order to cover it. And so there was uh, the beginning of that industry happening there. On the top of it, there was this uh, little microclimate that was conducive to grow roses. And that's how basically the the myth of grass uh, became what it is today. Today, it is still a very important place in perfumery, but it's also to be honest, uh, a little Disneyland as well. And the big perfume centers now are really based in New York and Paris and uh, a little in Switzerland. What did your parents do? My father was a factory worker in a tobacco factory. Tobacco. Uh, yeah. And my mother was a clerk in an attorney office. It's a very industrial place. Uh, there is not yeah. much to do. There is not much that happening. And uh, are they still alive? Yes, they are. Yeah. And it was your sense from early on that you wanted out. Uh, is that <laughs> is, I've read that. Is that true? <laughs> well, I don't know if I had the clarity that I wanted to escape. Uh, I was actually, I, I was kind of out very early without being out. Uh, I used my mind. I was a very introvert child, and I used my mind to escape without even realizing that this was a a coping mechanism. I remember my mom being worried for my well-being. One day she opened the door, I was maybe eight, and you can relate as a mother, like an eight-year-old child, she opens the door of my room and I'm lying on my bed looking at the ceiling. And she was really worried that uh, something was wrong with me. And she said, are you okay? And I would just tell her, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm in my thoughts and, wow, I'm going far, Maman. I think she couldn't really understand what was happening. Uh, me neither. But uh, now I, I make sense of the cosmic part of, uh, of the, that child, which right. I actually can find in my own now. So it's, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I'm going far, Mama. <laughs> Did you call her Mama? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Maman in French, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think really she, she was kind of worried. She, she, she wanted me to fit in, and, and she, she was not meeting her need for normalcy. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Fabrice Pinot, co-founder of the perfume company Le Labo. There was a sense you thought maybe you wanted to be a publisher or a writer. That's true. Yeah, that's part of what I was saying before in the fact that uh, I tried. Uh, I, I knew that I had something to say. Uh, I wanted to move people. Uh, I, I, had, uh, I didn't know if it was going to be with words, with images, um, with colors, uh, with music. I, I, had, I had to find my craft and, and 
perfumery happened to be on the way, and I, and and this was an alibi to really uh, try to create beauty uh, and my need for beauty for myself and 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 my need to to to, to make pe- life of people more beautiful. We talk about your mom being worried. W- were you worried at that moment, like at L'Oreal, where you had been meandering a little bit, dabbling in this and that and advertising, and before you landed uh, with Elizabeth at L'Oreal, the nose, mm-hmm. uh, were you at all worried about yourself? Or no, it was sort of just part of this journey. Well... Because by that time you were in your twenty, your late twenties. Yeah, 20s? I was. No, I was actually twenty-two, twenty-three. Oh, still uh, so young. Yeah. Uh, well, the truth is, I was born anxious, so I was always worried. But it was not worried about so much about myself. I think it is maybe something genetic. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 worry is a is a is a is a big subject in my life. Uh, at the time, I was not worried for me because I was carried away by by youth and success or what you would call that at the time and and adventure uh, yet very quickly I felt I mean after a few years I felt like a lion in a cage and I knew that my life had to be something else than working very hard for a corporation so you worked for L'Oreal both in Paris and in New York no um, I worked for them in Paris uh, and then uh, when I decided to leave after a little more than five years uh, I had a non-compete uh, a so I couldn't work I couldn't work anywhere in Europe which actually brought me to New York this was in 2003 yeah what did you think I actually I think I had been 24 hours in New York before just for an internship like a, like a seminar at L'Oréal then I came for an interview after I had left L'Oréal um, with that man uh, called Roger Schmidt, uh, who was the president of Fine Fragrances for a perfume house here in New York, who basically changed my life by uh, hiring me right away, um, even though my English was even worse than the one you can hear now. And um, he, he, he did take a bet on me. So I moved to New York with two suitcases, and uh, I had no doubt that I was doing the right, the right thing. I felt right away at home in New York City. What was it about New York? I felt for the first time in my life that I was living in the world I was born in. Things that were going at my pace. I was right away at home. And I remember at the time, when actually I decided to take the job, I was still creating perfumes for Giorgio Armani, for L'Oreal. And I really loved that man. And uh, we were pretty close at the time. And and when I told him that I was leaving uh, L'Oreal, so I was leaving Armani, uh, for New York, he, got, he, he became very upset and he told me, wait, 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 you, you, you do not leave me. I understand why you want to leave L'Oreal, but come to live in Milan and uh, help me with, with the fashion line. And, uh, and I was like, wow, I mean, that was a huge honor for a 28-year-old. And he, was, he had tears in his eyes and I was like, wow, 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 this is big. And, and then it took me a few seconds to... to to just say, you know what, no. I cherish uh, that decision. Uh, Like, I don't think about it a lot, actually. I've I've been thinking uh, about it for a very long time, and I'm happy to to, to remember that now because it was a defining moment. And you were friends with now your co-founder, Edouard Roschke, uh, who also worked at L'Oreal, and you two said, okay, we're, we're starting a company in New York. Well, so the way it worked is indeed I became close with Eddie uh, at Armani. 
At Armani, yep. Yeah, at, we were close at L'Oreal. Yep. At L'Oreal, and we actually we became friends. Like twice a month, we would fly to to Milan together to 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 show uh, the projects we had on the perfume side to to Mr. Armani. In on the way back, we would we really uh, connect. And so then after I left uh, to 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 New York, we stayed in contact. And and one day I really felt the urge to 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 try something here. And we thought about it. And I, I told him, look, why don't we do something together? Because he had definitely parts of his personalities that were giving me a lot of security. He was he's very business-minded and he's very uh, organized. And, and once he actually decided to do it, and uh, we actually pretty much worked every day remotely, it was the beginning of Skype. So we used that a lot uh, to, 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 to fine-tune the concept. And when he was ready and I was, uh, we left our jobs. When you decided, okay, we want to do a fragrance, did you feel like you knew emphatically what you wanted the fragrance to be and what you wanted the look and feel of the company to be, or did that evolve more slowly? Well, the fragrances themselves, uh, I think they were a result of half a decade of, of frustrations in developing perfumes that were very commercial. And we, s- we knew that what was possible, working with some of the best perfumers in the world. And we knew that w- what was coming out, which was really a tenth of the beauty of what uh, should have been, just because uh, these big companies rely on focus groups and market research and, and, and all the beauty is lost in the logic uh, of uh, minimizing risk. And we decided to bring uh, a new taste uh, to, to, to that uh, craftsmanship around, around perfume, which was really to share the backstage of perfume creation with a perfume lab making perfume. Uh, the backstage the back of stage. the process. Yeah, the backstage, because HO and our perfume stores are a lab where we make the perfumes to the order in front of you, which doesn't mean that they are created in front of you. The formulas are set, because perfume takes a few years to be created, but we make them fresh to the order in front of you. We personalize the label. There is a love of the making behind it that is very important. We wanted to share what we were seeing in the perfume lab every day when we were working ourselves in perfume labs, which was perfumers uh, writing formulas and, and lab technicians making them in order to evaluate the perfume and, and, and change the formula and to fine-tune the balance of it. Uh, we wanted uh, the people to see that because it it was a beautiful moment for us. Your decision to make the store like a lab, was that you and Edouard or Eddie like sitting over coffee in Brooklyn talking about that? Kind of, kind of. We wanted to go to the ultimate simplicity. So the design of the bottles was actually uh, non-existent. Uh, It was just a a stock bottle, uh, a a small label, uh, actually a box that looks like a UPS box. Actually, the, the first lab was designed out of the what we discovered in that space in, in, in Nolita, in, um, uh, in Elizabeth Street, which uh, when we, we pulled the, the sheet rock, we found a beautiful rock. tin wall, which became uh, a staple in every store now in the world. We just welcomed what was there. I think that's part of what people connect with. It's the authenticity of that story and, uh, and uh, the fact that we were not trying too hard. But also, I would say the scent was distinctive. For somebody who does not uh, know Lalabo, how would you define the, the, the sense? Yeah, it's a hard question. I would be pretty useless at doing that. These perfumes are, are self-explanatory when you wear them. There is, mm-hmm. though, a common link 
or logic through them that might be the only logic, which is the uh, term called wabi-sabi, a Japanese term to define the beauty of imperfection, the awareness of the impermanence of things and, and the beauty of really what is n unfinished. From the very beginning, Le Labo was based with this awareness. Every work we would do, every, every creative work, we would end it, bef end it before the last brush of paint, the last thing that makes it perfect and waste the whole thing. Actually, it's a term that you don't even explain or discuss in Japan. It's, you just feel it. It is this. It is a, a wall that is unfinished. It is a, a, a pottery that is crackled. The awareness of, of the impermanence of things is, was a big ha moment in my life. Just the idea of, of, of being okay with your own death and having done peace with it opens so many doors as a living spe like person, living so person. So what's an example that led you to feel this way, if you can even pinpoint it? This, this comfort with death, for example. It's more realizing what was moving me the most in my life aesthetically. It would be a, a falling leaf in fall. It would be like a, a cracked teapot uh, in Tokyo, which moved me. And that's, I realized also that's how I love human beings. I love, I love them cracked. Le Labo was based really on that. And it, now we don't discuss it so much. It's mm -hmm. just there. I want to talk about the mechanics of perfume for a moment. Just chemically, how does it work? Well, chemically, uh, a perfume is, is shaped as a triangle. Um, there is um, the top notes, which what you smell in the first place, in the first seconds, which are the head of the triangle, then the, the the middle, the heart of the triangle, of the pyramid, is the, the the heart of the perfume, and the bottom are the base notes, which is what you smell basically on a sweater after two or three hours. What's left? So it's it's a music, and you play with that um, as a perfumer. And which is interesting at Le Labo is that we don't focus so much on the top of the pyramid. Uh, we are more interested in what's going to happen. In, in 20 minutes, an hour, in your skin and what's actually going to be the journey uh, with you uh, through your day. And it's kind of counter-cultural in terms of perfume creation because most of the brands out there are focusing on the top note, denying the rest of the formula for the single reason that uh, the way they are distributed in department stores and, and multi-specialty uh, locations, they have only a few seconds to seduce their clients. So they are doing basically speed dating. They have a few seconds. And if they fail seducing you uh, on a blotter, then the client just go, goes to the next. We deny that kind of world. We don't, we, we, uh, we don't care. Once you decided to, to start the company uh, with Eddie, um, you moved out of your apartment. Is that right? Yes. I mean, yeah, because my apartment was paid my, by, by my company at the time. So when I left the job, I had to leave the apartment, which mm -hmm. was a Big deal because it was like 3,000 square feet in the West Village. But um, <laughs> but uh, I moved to a six-floor walk-up. Um, With Eddie? Uh, actually, at the time, Eddie was not there yet. And then he came. Yeah, that, that was the one of the defining moments of, of the beginning of Le Labo was, was really to, to cut the, the, the rope of the comfort of our former life. The stripped-down, bare-bones nature of your personal life kind of was reflected in the the main of the brand. Maybe, and, and to be honest, the, the bare-bone reality was kind of imposed to us because... Imposed? Imposed mm -hmm. to us. 
the barebone reality was kind of imposed to us because we tried actually to make it more comfortable. We tried to raise money mm-hmm. and we couldn't convince anybody. We tried to um, hire um, a famous architect who didn't want to work for us and uh, like $300,000, which we didn't have. So we had to do everything by ourselves because nobody really wanted to be part of this, which was such a blessing, obviously, because uh, of what we shared about making things yourself. We actually designed the first door ourselves. We carried the candles in the basement of 233 Elizabeth Street for two and a half or three years. Tons and tons and tons of candles stirring there. Uh, it was, it, and it, 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 and by, uh, in retrospect now, these were, these are, are the best memories, but we would have raised, we, we actually built the company for about a little less than $300,000 right. uh, with n- no other investors, no debt, nothing. Everything was there. Uh, but we would have raised $2 million. We would have spent them. Which investors did you go to who turned you down? Because you had credibility of your, um, mm. you know, your... We had credibility a little, but the truth is this market didn't exist yet. This market didn't exist. Uh, so the idea of selling a perfume for $200 from a company that was not a big fashion company in a place that was not a department store, at a, at a design that was not a design, <laughs> and at a price that was like four, five times the, the price of a normal perfume... This was not inspiring everybody, really. So that's 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 one thing. One of the actually early potential investors was actually Giorgio Armani himself. We went to 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 pitch him in Milan with Eddie, and Mr. Armani has a beautiful story. He was himself a poor child uh, mm. raised by a mother, and he worked at La Rinascente later on. To, he was a, a window dresser, La Rinascente being the the Saks Fifth Avenue of of Milan, and then he became the assistant of Gianfranco Ferri, I think, and then with his boyfriend, uh, they sold their car when he was 41 years old. So it was pretty, he was late. And he built his own business and it became mm. the biggest empire, one of the biggest empire in fashion. So we went to, to pitch him and he said, but why me? And I, uh, we told him, look, you're the only rich person we know. And he really liked that, to be honest. And he decided to say yes to the investment. And then quickly, uh, lawyers got involved and his personal blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, the fact that we were former L'Oréal employees just off the nest. So they prevented him to do it. But that was basically the closest thing we had to something pretty significant. So how did you earn in- income? How did you feed yourself uh, on the side while you were building Le Labo? We had a, a little savings from uh, our previous life, but not a, not a lot. We, we got lucky in the fact that very quickly a lot of people wanting to work with us, like hotels, fashion brands. Um, and we would say, well, we don't really want to do co-branding with you guys because we wanted to protect Le Labo at all costs. But if you want, we could create a perfume for you. And we could consult for you. We could consult, exactly. So we built a little business next to Le Labo. Uh, that's called Candy Machine. We developed perfumes for hotel lines, Zadig and Voltaire, which is a French fashion line, uh, Jan Schrager, and uh, Anthropology. A few, a few, a few lines like this who actually uh, uh, allowed us to um, to leave Le Labo on its own and keep the cash there in order to really reinvest every profit to our growth. When was the first indication that this is working? Well, our, our business model, original business model, was planning to sell four perfumes a day. Uh, four perfumes, four a, perfumes day. a day. Yeah. 
And so everybody was telling us, look, it's like you're opening in a street where nobody goes. Elizabeth uh, Street. Elizabeth Street at the time was Nolita and was not the extension of so as it is now. It was really um, slow, but that was the only place where we could pay rent. So that was in February 2006. By December 2006, we had one day where we sold 70 bottles a day. Seven zero? Yeah, seven zero. So we felt that something was happening. Yet... Yet, when I, when I think about it now, we never really understood that we were facing a phenomenon. Uh, a phenomenon. Or, yeah, or the beginning of it. We were so much in survival mode and working so hard that we, there was no moment of celebration. Santel 33 is, you know, the brand that's so iconic. It's iconically connected to yeah. La Labo. Is that what you were selling at the time? No, actually, because this perfume didn't exist at the time. Mm. Yeah. The big seller at the time was Rose 31, oh, okay. uh, which really was our best seller. I was uh, the thing that w made us known. Um, and we had a candle called Santal 26. That was doing well, but that was the only candle we had. And Uh, really, we didn't uh, think too much of it because uh, we didn't want to make candles. We wanted to be perfumers. And then one day, a few years later, uh, it was during the World Cup, I remember, and there was a, a soccer game in the street uh, being shown in the street in, on Spring Street, close to the store. And I was watching it, and a guy in front of me was smelling this amazing smell. I was like, wow, what is he wearing? So I... I I tap on his on his shoulder, th thinking that I would actually really uh, want to know what he was wearing and and potentially really do a knockoff of this because that was so good. And the, a knockoff. A yeah. knockoff, yeah. And and I said, well, what are you wearing? And the guy happened to be French, and said, well, uh, actually, I'm a little embarrassed because it's a home scent. It's a home. It's a home spray. I'm like, really? Yeah, it's at that place over there called Le Labo. It's called Santal 26. It's a home spray. <sighs> I was like, what? And I didn't even recognize Your our own. own perfume because we never looked at that perfume being a fine fragrance. This was just a candle for us. And this was under our nose for the whole time. Uh, and so I, I called Eddie and I was like, man, like, we should stop working on anything else. We have it already, the next launch. He's like, what? And then we started yep. working on making this candle formula a, a true fine fragrance formula, which is... Uh, Uh, very different because you have to work on the performance of this perfume, of uh, on the diffusion in the air, the remanence, meaning the long-lastingness on skin, uh, and it's uh, it's very technical. So, how did he make it at home? We sold actually a candle and a, 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 a home spray next to it. Oh, a home which was, spray! So he, he bought the home spray and put it on him. It's oh, kind of embarrassing. No. It's very telling. Yeah. And such a like philosophically profound idea, like we spend our lives looking elsewhere, exactly, yeah. yet it, it was with you all along. Exactly. And and now, now Santal 33 is the pillar of the company. Without it, we, pillar, yeah. we are very, very, very different business. And was there one or two or three people who started wearing it that really helped to catalyze things for you? I mean, Justin Bieber wears it, uh, yeah. like, like, or was that not as... Mm, yeah, I mean, we had a, I mean, after we opened in Los Angeles pretty quickly, the year after, and indeed we had a lot of celebrities part of our clients, and Jennifer Lopez was buying like boxes and boxes of, of our candles for our houses. We were seeing that as dollars rather than any PR leverage there because we didn't really make that a PR thing. It wasn't PR, meaning you didn't give it to her for free. She was buying, oh, paying full sure. price. Yeah, that's part of our manifesto. Uh, celebrities should pay full price. Did Estee Lauder approach you or did you knock on their door? 
they approached us. Uh, they knocked on our door at a time where actually we were burned out and we were ready to uh, to get some support. Leonard Lauder came to meet with me uh, downtown. Leonard Lauder. Yeah, who is a legend in our world and uh, came to sit in the in the little chair uh, in the back of our store on Elizabeth Street. He came down personally. Yeah, yeah. He's very involved in the acquisitions, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Anything else about that? or? Well, uh, yes, because one of the... Uh, one of uh, after a while I asked him if he wanted to have a to, to, to have a drink and he said can I have a coffee and so I went across the street to the little uh, um, bar to get him an espresso and I, maybe I left for five minutes and I left him in the back of the store on, on, on the club chair I believe he's 83 years old and and, and, and I came back and um, he was around the counter talking with us with my staff and uh, asking questions and stuff like that and I came back with the with the coffee and he drank the coffee and left, uh, and that was it. And then after uh, I said to the staff, "What, what were you guys, what were you guys talking about?" And she said, "Well, he asked us two questions. The first one, what if you had something to change about this business, what would it be?" Which, by the way, I don't know the answer. <laughs> uh, what they said. And second, um, is this guy treating you well? And and actually, this 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 second question meant a lot to me and to Eddie because I, I shared that after with him because that meant that it, it meant a lot to him which which actually uh, convinced us to, to go with them uh, at the end. That's tremendous. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your personal life very briefly. Uh, you have a home in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn. From what I've read, it kind of reflects your, your life, right? This uh, wabi-sabi that we were talking about before. You have three children yeah. with Jennifer Medley, uh, who's, is she a model? Uh, the, the act, uh, she was a model and uh, she became uh, a holistic nutritionist after her model career. Oh, she's a holistic nutritionist. Absolutely. You mentioned that your first floor of your house is your favorite. Yeah. And that upstairs basically like is just mattresses on the floor That's and true. things like that. And when I first read this, I thought, well, it's kind of like his focus, um, like it's kind of like the conventional idea of perfumes focus <laughs> on like the high notes. <laughs> That's like, funny. Like you walk in, oh, the first floor is nice, but well, what, what about upstairs? <laughs> like do you, how do you navigate that? I never saw it that way. It's, it's yeah, there's, that's the base of the pyramid. That's the, the parlor floor is where all the life is happening in our, in our family. That's where our kids are playing and, uh, and are knitting and, and, and laughing and crying. And that's where life is. Uh, where Messy. The, and the kitchen being Jennifer's craft with the, the nutrition. Uh, that's all life surrounds uh, the kitchen. And that floor, I was always very... Uh, anxious about moving to a to a house because I, w I would imagine my kids being in their room and not uh, seeing them uh, live and play um, versus a life in a loft, for example. So that's that we we try to design this house to make sure that everybody had an incentive to be in the same floor and and stay together. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Fabrice Pinot, co-founder of Lalabo. I'm Jessica Harris. This is from scratch.